All right, as you turn back to Luke chapter 14, this is a chapter that I have always liked, always loved to read this. Part of the reason is, is talks about supper, <laughs> but the supper is the word of, is the kingdom of God. And when we think about uh, prophecy and prophetic things, especially out of the gospels, the uh, predictions of the kingdom of God that will come to the earth one day is an important subject. And here that's likened to a supper that people are invited to come to. And of course, as the Lord came to the earth, he invited his people, the Jewish people, to believe in him. And if they would believe in him, they would see the kingdom of God one day too. Of course, most of them did not. Some of them did. So uh, it's, a, it's a chapter about those kinds of things and about God's invitation to people to believe and to eventually come to that supper. After all, that's what you and I do. If we witness to someone with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're really inviting them to come to the kingdom of God. They won't get there until uh, after they die and are resurrected or after they're raptured, uh, but they'll be there one day. Uh, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Let me ask you some questions as, as we begin. Are, are we, do you think, at the end of the age? Are we, are we close to the Lord's coming? I mean, we've been saying that all of my life and all of your life. It hasn't happened yet, but I hope that you believe that we're there, that it's not going to be in hundreds of more years or, or something like that. Then let me ask you this, then, then is the world getting better or is it getting worse? If you said the world is getting better, I need to take your temperature, your, your <laughs> biblical uh, temperature. Uh, no, I think we would agree, at least from a Christian point of view and a moral point of view, when we look around us, uh, the world is not getting better. Things are, are struggling and in many ways uh, worse than they were from a moral standpoint. Why then doesn't it seem like the plain gospel work anymore? And you say to yourself, it does, and I agree, it does. But I think the, a large opinion of Christian people today is you can't just give the plain gospel and expect people to receive it. You've got to have something along with it. Matter of fact, I was at a pastor's prayer meeting this last week, and a young man who was thinking about himself going into the ministry one day kind of spoke up and said, you know, you, you can't just approach people anymore with just the gospel and talk to them about being saved. You, you just can't do that. And I thought to myself, that's a strange thing to say for someone uh, wanting to go into the ministry. Well, why does it take what one man called a, a Sesame Street mentality? Uh, that, by the way, a, a man that I like to read, Neil Postman, years ago wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. Amusing Ourselves to Death. And he called our generation the Sesame Street generation. In other words, if you entertain me, I'll learn. If you don't entertain me, I'm not going to learn. And so we kind of have this mentality that uh, even in giving out the gospel, we kind of have to entertain first. We kind of have to make it interesting. We, we have to do something like that, and then we might be able to present the gospel. 
well, do we walk by faith or, or by sight? Do we need sight in order to have faith? Is that what we need to do in order to come to the Lord? Well, you know, in, in our passage that we're going to look at in Luke 14, there are kind of two problems here from two different sides. One is a problem with the invitors. That is, those who invited others to come, they wanted a reward for it. They kind of wanted to be lifted up. They wanted to be congratulated for inviting people to come. And on the other side, there are the invitees, those who had been invited, but to them, the supper didn't look exciting enough. They made excuses why they didn't really want to go to that supper. And uh, they want, if they did, they wanted to be recognized for being there and being a high seat, not in a low seat. So there's a problem here of those who make the supper and those who respond. We'll see that in a minute. You know, I don't know about you, but I like supper. And uh, it seems to me that, you know, you go to a supper for what you're going to eat, right? Isn't that what you do? Uh, I can remember years ago, we used to travel 600 miles to Grandma and Grandpa's house so we could eat biscuits and gravy and, and uh, deep-fried catfish and blackberry cobbler. I mean, you know, it was worth it. But that little old white frame house that Grandma and Grandpa lived in and that little closed-in uh, dining room wasn't a whole lot of uh, ambiance, but it didn't matter when you had that kind of stuff to eat, did it? Nowadays, folks, we, we have to have theme restaurants, you know? Uh, we don't go eat unless it's, it's someplace that uh, really excites us and is really fun. You know, so if you want to eat Mexican food, you're going to go to something that's kind of like being in Mexico. If you want Italian food, you're going to be like being in Italy, you know? And if you want Chinese food, it's going to like be in the Orient. And if that restaurant isn't decorated like that, then uh, you may not go there to eat. It's just not, not much fun. As a matter of fact, when, when we go to Chicago to visit kids, and we've got two little grandsons there, they like to go out to eat in, a, in the mall in a place called the Rainforest Cafe. You've never seen anything like it, folks. This is, this is the, the Amazon jungle. I mean, they've got crocodiles. They've got snakes hanging from the ceiling. They've got, you know, uh, all kinds of animals, monkeys and chimpanzees and stuff all over the place. And it's, it, it's amazing. And, of course, most of it is a store. And the fact is we end up going to the store and not eating there. <laughs> I don't know if they have good food or not, but kids love it, and so families go because it's like a rainforest. I don't know if you've been out to the legends to a place called the T-Rex Cafe. Well, take your earmuffs if you go. I mean, the kid, they've got T-Rexes, and they got dinosaurs, and this place thunders and shakes, and, and you know, lightning's going off, and it's raining here and there. I just want to eat, <laughs> but... You can't in a place like that, seems like to me anyway. I mean, so this is what we have to do to get people to come to dinner. And, of course, you know, if you ask your grandkids, where do you want to go eat lunch? Wherever there's a playland, right? I mean, you know, let's go to where they have a playland so we can play and then eat lunch. Well, I'm just illustrating the fact that sometimes people have to be entertained to get them to do what you want them to do. And that's kind of our mentality today. Everything we do has to kind of have an entertainment. Don't you think that's spilled over a little too much into church these days? And yet it is, kind of seems to be, that unless you do that, people aren't that interested in coming, unless there's a lot of entertainment to it. 
Well, God is inviting people to a supper here, we see in Luke 14. And there's a lot of people who say, you know, I don't really want to go to that supper. I've got things to do. I don't think I will. And here's God inviting them really to the kingdom of God as Jesus is presenting it. And they're saying to him, I'm not sure we want to come to that. Isn't that a sad thing? Well, I give you a rough outline in, in your uh uh, in your bulletin, if you want to follow it with four thoughts here as this chapter is broken down. Now, Ron read to us just the first section, the 7 through 11 section, but I hope that I have time this morning to take us quickly through the rest of the chapter because it's divided into four things, and I want us to see these. First of all, in verses 7 to 11, is uh, the Lord here talks about the guests. Now, uh, we might back up. And, uh, and realize here that in these verses, uh, Jesus, has, it's, he comes to a Pharisee's house. He's a chief Pharisee, and uh, he heals a person, and uh, it's on the Sabbath day, and you're not supposed to be doing this kind of work on the Sabbath, they say, and so he begins to uh, give them this explanation. And so beginning in verse 7, he's talking about, here's the normal picture of what happens. He put forth a parable to those which were bidden, that is to this chief Pharisee's house, when he marked out how they chose out the chief rooms. In other words, here's the typical thing. They come to this big house, and they're going to eat with all of these other people that are there, it seems like the publicans especially had, did this a lot. The Pharisees did this a lot. And so uh, they're going to uh, be in this house and eating. And evidently, this, these kinds of houses divided up in rooms so that not everyone eating could sit in the same room. So as you come into the house, you may have to eat with these people over here, or maybe you're going to eat with these people over here. The problem is that these are the important people over here. The people over here aren't, aren't too important. If you eat with those, no one's going to notice you, see, that you're there. So the people would come in and begin right away before they ever chose out the rooms where they're going to sit. What would be advantageous for me? I need to speak with this person. I need to be seen with these people over here. I need to be in an important place here. And so they would stop and consider where they would go to sit down and, and, and how that would be an advantage to them to do it. That's what he's saying in verse 7. And uh, then the disappointment follows. When thou art bidden of any man to a wedding, sit not down in the highest rooms. Now, this, this is probably a shocker to them. <laughs> Jesus said, I saw what you did. I saw what you, you, you picked out what you thought would be the highest room, that is, the, where the most important people are. You know, this is where the important people sit. Don't do that, the Lord says in verse 8. Lest a more honorable man than thou be bidden of him, and he that bade thee, the, the host to the supper, and the one coming with him, say to thee, Give this man place, and thou begin with shame to take the lowest room. Oh, he comes to you and says, uh, by the way, you're not supposed to be sitting here. <laughs> and you get up with your head bowed, and you go to the other room. This is kind of be like, you know, you go to a wedding reception, and the wedding service is over, and the reception's in the fellowship hall, and in the fellowship hall, they have the head table up there. 
And so you just leave the wedding, you go down to the, uh, to the uh, wedding reception, and you just pull up a chair at the head table and sit down. This is where the important people are. I'll just sit here. And then the wedding party comes in, and they look at you and say, uh, <clears throat> you're not supposed to be sitting at the head table. And so you get up and kind of look around. Everybody's looking at you laughing, and you have to go take some back seat somewhere. Okay, well, that's, that's what the Lord is saying, because that may happen to you. And sometimes when we do that to ourselves, that's what happens. You know, there, there's an old expression, uh, being green with envy. <laughs> uh, and where that expression comes from, there's a lot of debate about, because Shakespeare uh, talked about jealousy being a green-eyed monster. But there's also an old tradition that in, in England especially, where you had the royalty and everything, if you were invited to a supper, there were various different rooms, and those rooms were different colors. And the, and the important people sat in the red rooms and the blue rooms because those were colors of royalty. But uh, the lower people sat in the green rooms. And so if you were a person that sat in the green room, you sat in there and you were green with envy because you had to sit in the green rooms, not in the, in the red and the blue rooms. Well, wherever that expression comes from, here's what Jesus is talking about. You're going to, uh, you know, you, you uh, are so envious that uh, you're trying to build yourself up, trying to make yourself important by where you sit. You may be disappointed to do that. And so... In verse 10, rather, here's Jesus' advice. When thou art bidden, go and sit in the lowest room. I mean, choose that one out. That when he that bade thee cometh, he may say to thee, friend, go up higher. Then shall thou have worship in the presence of them that sat at meat with thee. In other words, it'd be a lot better, wouldn't it, if you went and sat in the back of the room and the host came in and said, oh, no, we want you at the head table. We want you to sit up here on this table with, the, with these guests, and then you're kind of uh, exalted by someone else, right? So what then does verse 11 point out? A very common expression, whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. You remember these kinds of words, don't you, in, in Matthew 23? He that is the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Even Job said in Job twenty-two twenty-nine, When men are cast down, then shalt thou say, There is lifting up, and he shall save the humble person. Proverbs twenty-nine twenty-three: A man's pride shall bring him low, but honor shall uphold the humble in spirit. And even James in 4.10 said, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. And so it's a biblical principle that the Lord gives here and is given uh, often in the scriptures. Don't exalt yourself. Be a person of humility and let the Lord exalt you. It's better to be a big duck in a little pond than a little duck in a big pond. <laughs> you know, you may get in over your head anyway. Uh, be where you can be a blessing. Be where you can do some good. And then if the Lord wants to use you in greater ways, then fine. You know, even though it's a biblical principle and we read it throughout the, the scriptures, uh, it's a rare thing to see that type of true humility. 
we usually want to be exalted. We want that to happen. It's not part of our human nature uh, to be humble. It's really part of our human nature to exalt ourselves. And that's usually what we try to do. I want you to notice, though, the end of, uh, well, we'll see it again at the end of verse uh, 14. We'll see it at the end uh, of this whole chapter. And that is, I want you to remember this. When Jesus says that if you humble yourself, you will be exalted, he's not necessarily talking about this life. That's going to be a hard thing to swallow. Because a lot of times we're not satisfied to say, well, Lord, I will humble myself to service for you for the rest of my life in these days, and I don't care if anybody rewards me or not. When I stand before you, that will be reward enough. If there's a crown at the Bema Seat of Christ, if there's a reward at the Bema Seat, that's enough for me. I don't need it in this life. That is tough to take. And a lot of people take these admonitions, and I think wrongfully so, that what the Lord is saying to you is, before you die, God will reward your humility, you know. Before you die, God will exalt you. And so we have this false humility of, oh, I'm such a humble person, you know. Now hurry up, Lord, exalt me, because I've had enough of this humility. I'm just a humble person, and we're waiting for God to exalt us. That's, you know, the way up. That's the way to get important. That's no better than just being prideful. You might as well be. We'll see that again in just a minute. So here's, here's Jesus describing the, the guests at this, at this uh, supper. Secondly, he describes the host himself and the man who invo- invites others to come in verses 12 through 14. Let me read those with you. Then he said, to him that bade him, when thou makest a dinner or supper, call not thy friends nor thy brethren, neither thy kinsmen, nor thy rich neighbors, lest they also bid thee again, and a recompense or a payback be made thee. (laughs) Wait a minute. Isn't that why I did this supper? (laughs) Isn't that why I invited all these rich people? So they'll invite me next week? I mean, after all, I've got to travel in those circles. But when thou makest a feast, call the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Really? That's not much of a dinner, it seems like to me. And thou shalt be blessed, for they cannot recompense it. They can't pay you back. And thou shalt be recompensed at the resurrection of the just. You kind of see how Jesus is getting to this, don't you? You see uh, him doing the opposite that he said up above. Now, He's talking to a chief Pharisee, by the way. He's talking to this man who made the supper, uh, and the Pharisees were busy about climbing the ladder of importance. Although, you know, I, I should say here, I'm, I'm going to put a historical footnote in here. As a matter of fact, I even I went over to my bookshelf uh, yesterday as I was looking over this, and I, and I pulled out H.A. Uh, Ironside's little book, The 400 Silent Years, and I read again the history of the Pharisees. We, we uh, you know, give them a bad name, and rightfully so in the first century. But I want you to know, if you went back 200 years before Christ, you would have the people who were standing for the faith in the nation of Israel. And in the days of the, of the, uh, the Greeks, when they were bringing in Greek culture into Jerusalem and into the temple, 
And eventually, uh, you know, the, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes would, would offer a pig on the altar in, in Jerusalem. Uh, the, these people were standing against the intrusion of the Greek culture into their Jewish culture. And they were called Pharisees. But over the 200 years since then, uh, their fights had become less important and they had become selfish about it and prideful about it to where rather than standing for the faith and the purity of their own uh, temple and, and city and faith, they, it became about themselves. And uh, it, they were all in it to exalt themselves. Man, that's a great history to read and I think folks, that maybe fundamentalists of the 20th century should read more of that history and go back 100 or 150 years when we stood against the creeping liberalism that was coming into this country. And I wonder in many ways if now in the 21st century, if we aren't in it for ourselves. We have a supper so that we can invite the important people to come to our supper and then they'll invite us. Well, back to the story. Enough history about that. But here in verse 12 is what not to do. <laughs> Call not thy friends and brethren and kinsmen and rich neighbors. Don't do that. And why shouldn't I? Because they can pay you back. And the guy says, but that's why I'm doing it. <laughs> that's why I'm inviting them. I want to be in their circles. I want them to invite me. I, I want to be, uh, you know, kind of doing what they're doing. That's why you did it. Well, verse 13 is what you ought to do. Rather than that, go out and find people that don't have the ability to reward you in any way and invite them to your supper. You know, those people, they're out. There's the blind Bartimaeus, and there's the others out there. And the, uh, you can go find them easily, the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind. In other words, just people who don't have the ability to help you. They don't have the ability to make you more important. As a matter of fact, you'll probably be brought down a notch or two in the eyes of important people if you're around those kind of people. Jesus said, go have dinner with them because they can't recompense you. And you, say, you know, we scratch our heads and say, no, wait a minute. Aren't we, didn't you say you would exalt me? Didn't you say that if I humbled myself, you'd do, and now you're saying, don't look for an exaltation. Don't look for a repay. Don't look for a recompense. And he says in verse 14, thou shalt be blessed. Oh, really? <laughs> to be less important? To be seen by fewer people? For they cannot recompense thee, and thou shalt be recompensed, notice, at the resurrection of the just. Again, not in this life, but in the next life. The resurrection is in two parts. There's the resurrection of the just and the resurrection of the unjust, of the saved and the lost. The, resurrection, the first resurrection, the second resurrection. The first resurrection of the just will be of all believers, whether at the rapture, at the return of Christ, uh, the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints will all be resurrected. That all is the resurrection of the just. Later, after the kingdom of God and at the white throne judgment, there's the resurrection of the unjust. Well, you'll be part of the resurrection of the just. You're, you're part of the believers. So that's where your reward is. You don't need any other reward. That's why we have a Bema seat of Christ. Why do we have such a thing? Why is the Lord even going to have uh, that award ceremony at the end of the race if that's not when our 
uh, rewards come. So run the race right now. Be busy doing the things that he wants you to do right now. Now, do this with me real fast. You're in Luke uh, 14, so hold your place there and go back to Matthew chapter 6 in the, in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this long uh, sermon that Jesus had preached uh, quite a time before what we're reading in Luke. And in chapter 6, he's going to talk about doing three things. In verse 1, he's going to talk about almsgiving. You see that word, take heed that you do not your alms before men? All right, he's going to talk about almsgiving there. In verse 5, he's going to talk about praying. When thou prayest, thou shalt not be as the hypocrites are. And then in verse 16, he's going to talk about fasting. Moreover, when you fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance. All right, let's go back to verse 1, and we can apply this to all three. So in almsgiving, that is, you know, you're going to give your money to, to do good. You're going to give your offerings and so forth. Take heed that you do not your alms before men to be seen of them. Otherwise, you have no reward of your Father which is in heaven. Therefore, when thou doest thine alms, do not sound a trumpet before thee as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may have glory of men. Verily I say unto you, notice, they have their reward. Oh, yeah, well, what is that? Well, somebody said, ooh, ah, look at him. They sounded a trumpet and somebody stopped to watch them. That's their reward. Is that what you want out of life? Somebody to ooh and ah over what you're doing? But when thou doest thine alms, verse 3, let not thy left hand know what thy right hand doeth. Don't let anybody else see it. That thine alms may be in secret. And notice this. And thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. The same sense in which we're reading in Luke 14. About praying. Uh, notice uh, verse 6. When thou prayest. Enter into thy closet. When thou hast shut thy door, pray to thy father which seeth in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. At the end of verse 5, he said, if you pray otherwise, they have their reward. That is your reward. And the same with fasting. At the end of verse 16, they have their reward. But at the end of verse 17, thy father which seeth in secret, or 18, thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. So what's the Lord, what did the Lord say in that sermon? Well, if you want to be seen of men, then be seen of them. That's the only reward you'll have throughout eternity. Don't look for it at the bema seat of Christ. I wanted to sing a song so that people could clap. I wanted to preach a sermon so that people could ooh and all over it. I wanted to, to uh, serve somebody a meal so that somebody could say, you're a wonderful person for serving somebody a meal. I mean, we do, it all, we do it all the time. It's hard not to do. But do it just because it's the right thing to do and what the Lord commanded you, and let him take care of whatever reward you have. Then your reward will be in heaven. These are hard sayings, aren't they? How do, you, how do we choose out our guests? You know, it's hard because, I, you know, we all have friends, and we like to exchange things with friends. You go over to their house, they come to yours. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, and I'm not saying that there is. But do we do all of that just so somebody can congratulate us? That's what I'm saying. 
Is that why we do it? How do you choose your friends? How do you choose guests at a meal? How do you choose the church you go to? Is there enough reward here for you? Enough hand clapping for you? Enough, uh, you know, uh, rewards for serving God here? Or are we always looking to return the favor in such a way? I don't know. We're always wanting to serve so that we can get noticed. You know, some people uh, put the most self-serving things on Facebook to see if their post can go viral. <laughs> you know, so I'm going to be as humble as I can on Facebook, and maybe I'll get a million hits on it, and then look how wonderful my Facebook post was. Come on. I, I'm tired of watching the news where they bring somebody who's posted something, you know, online, and now that person's famous because they posted that online, and of course that's why they did it in the first place. What is our motivation for these kinds of things? Now, here's the guest, here's the host. So let me move on quickly. The inquirer, this person now who asked Jesus later, begin from verse 15 all the way to verse 24, so a little longer passage. So it begins with, with one of them that sat at meat with him, heard these things. He said, well, blessed is he that shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, here's a man that has a little bit of understanding. Maybe he kind of picked up on what Jesus was saying about this supper and about the kingdom of God. He may have been a Pharisee himself. I don't know. Was he understanding or was he just prideful? I don't know that either. But it's interesting that he mentions the kingdom of God in verse 15, and the Lord mentions a great supper in verse 16, because the kingdom of God is our supper. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the kingdom of God that will be on the earth for a thousand years, and God has invited us to come to it. He's invited the lame, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. How do you like that? And that's who we are. And he's invited us to come to that supper. Will you say yes or will you say no? Well, in these verses, what you have is he sends out his, his uh, servants to say, I've made a supper, I want you to come. And notice again as you read, verse 17, he sent his servant at supper time saying to them that were bidden, come for all things are now ready. But notice what happened. They all with one consent began to make excuse. I'd come, but you know, I just can't. I, I don't want to right now. And, and folks, he is, he is paralleling exactly what he as the son of God was doing on this earth. He was inviting people to come and believe in him, to come to the kingdom of God. And the Jewish people and those that heard him said, we don't know if we believe you or not. We don't know if we want to come to what you're talking about or not. Isn't that sad? They all began with one excuse. The first said, I have bought a piece of ground. I must needs go and see it. I pray they have me excused. Well, I've got to go plow a field. I don't, I don't want to come to your steak dinner. I'd rather go plow a field. That's a real excuse. But that's used. And another said, I bought, I bought five yoke of oxen. And I go to prove them. I pray they have me excused. I mean, that's a lot of work, breaking in yoke of oxen. But I'm going to go do that rather than come to your dinner. We make the craziest excuses for not believing in the Lord, don't we? You know, I've got friends, and if they go to hell, that's where I want to go to. Come on, is that your excuse for rejecting heaven? But we do this kind of thing all the time. And then the third one, <laughs> I like. I married a wife, and they said, oh, I understand. 
He doesn't have to explain that. I married a wife, and therefore I can't come. Well, okay, I understand what that means. So the, all, the, all three excuses are given here. And, and basically, I look at these three excuses, and, and the first invitation that goes out is Jesus giving the invitation to the Jewish people themselves. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And so that's what happens first. And so notice after, the, after these things, he says in verse 21, the servant came and showed his Lord these things and the master of the house being angry said to his servants, then go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor, the maimed, the halt and the blind. In other words, not just my friends and the people I know. If they said no, fine, Let, go to people I, don't, I haven't even met yet. It's kind of like, First, the ones that are near, then the ones that are a little farther out. Maybe this is how when he sent 12 disciples to the nation of Israel only, then he sent 70 disciples to include the Samaritans also. And some of them believe, some of them not. But notice what he says uh, after he, he did that. In verse 22, the servant said, well, Lord, it is done as you commanded, and still there's room. Not enough people have said yes. And then he said, Lord said unto the servant, verse 23, go out into the highways and hedges. Go as far as you can go and compel them to come in that my house may be full. I guess that young man who said to me the other day that you just can't give the plain gospel to people anymore, maybe he should have read that verse. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in. Herod said, Paul, almost you persuade me to be a Christian. He said, I wish I could persuade you. Go out and get them. Go out and take the gospel to them. And this is probably the Jewish opportunity then. So you have the, the gospel given to the Jews. It was rejected. The gospel's given to the Jews and the Samaritans. Ah, some of them came. But now the Lord says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature, and invite them to come. And praise the Lord for that, because we're in that group. We're, we're part of those uh, poor and maimed and halt and blind out in the highways and hedges of the world. And so go invite them to my supper. And notice uh, then, just like uh, uh, in uh, verse 14, where, where they will be recompensed at the resurrection of the just, none of those men that were bidden shall taste of my supper. In other words, there's going to be a great separation day, a judgment day. And those who have not believed will not be sheep, they will be goats. They'll not be wheat, they'll be tares. They'll not be those that have on the proper wedding garment, they'll be those without the wedding garment. And they'll be cast out into outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. They're not going to go into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born again, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Except a man be born of, the, of water and spirit, he shall not enter into the kingdom of God. That time is coming. So, evangelism's a messy business. Evangelism isn't just to the, the, the uh, clean and neat and important and rich, is it? Even though we've gotten into this mentality of, well, my target audience, you know, I, I have a target audience for my ministry, and, it, and who is that target audience? Well, you know, I feel called of God to reach out to the bank presidents, and to the senators and, and legislatures of my, yeah, sure you do, because they can recompense you, can't they? 
your neighbor, love your neighbor, is the person who's next to you. <laughs> if you want to know who your neighbor is, it's the person next to you. And go after that person. You know, uh, I've been to some of the beautiful cathedrals uh, of the world, not, not a, a lot of them, but I've seen Westminster Abbey, I've seen Canterbury Cathedral and those kind of huge, big cathedrals with... And, and you got to imagine, a thousand years ago when these things were built, a thousand years, and they built those cathedrals to reach into heaven, and you walked into there, and boy, they had the beautiful stained glass, and they had the high ceilings, and they had the statues, and they had the marble, and they had uh, beautiful things around. And people came to those cathedrals because they needed to be entertained, frankly. And the, and the gatherings of God's people over here in some backwoods place, that wasn't any fun. Go to the cathedrals where they have all of these beautiful sights and sounds. And we'll come and we'll all gather together into them. I heard of a church the other day. Actually, Joey was telling me about this. Uh, you know, wh what, they, wh what it costs to build a mega church these days is millions upon millions of dollars to have screens, to have lights, to have stages, to have sounds, to have all that they have, millions upon millions to build a, a church like that. And why? Because people need to be entertained or they won't come. Go out into the highways and hedges and compel people with the gospel to come in. Well, quickly, I need to move on to the last, and that is the observers then, from verses 25 to, to 35, uh, as he leaves, notice it says, there went great multitude with him, and he turned and said unto them. So maybe this is after dinner, maybe they're walking down the street afterwards, I, I, I don't know. But uh, uh, some of them at least followed him and wanted to know more. You know, one of the things I find in the New Testament is wherever the gospel's preached, there's some people are going to say no, and some people are going to say yes. It's kind of that easy. As a matter of fact, in, if you read Acts 17 alone, uh, here is Paul uh, in Thessalonica, and it says, Some of them believed and consorted with Paul and Silas, devout Greeks and multitude, chief women even, not a few. But the Jews which believed not, some believed, some did not. He goes to Athens, and when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but Paul departed from them, how, men, how, uh, how be it, certain men clave unto him and believed. That's always the story. He gives out the gospel, and the Lord does with it what he wants, and, and you give out the gospel, you try to persuade people. Don't be discouraged when some people say, no, folks. It's just the way it is in the world. Some will say yes. So here are these observers, and, and uh, uh, he makes a startling statement three times. The first one's in verse 26. Well, let me tell you this, he says. If any man come after me, and hate not his father and mother and wife and children and brethren and sisters and his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now we know, and I hope you know, that by using the word hate here, what he means is you've got to choose me over them. You've got to choose what is best over what is not best. God said, Esau uh, or Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. You mean God hated Esau? No, he chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. Do you choose family and friends and rich neighbors over the Lord? If you do that, you cannot be my disciple. And the word cannot, I want you to know, 
is the word dynamite with the A in front of it. Adunatos. You don't have the power to be my disciple. It is, as a matter of fact, Hebrews chapter 6. For those who turn away, it is impossible to renew them again to salvation. Same word. It, is, it, you, it cannot be done. It's a dangerous thing to turn down God's invitation. If you can't come because of faith, then you don't come. It's impossible for you to come. Well, he's going to say that same thing two more times. Verse 27, whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, I, I, I would come, but I'm not willing to pay that kind of a price. Then he gives verses in 28 to 32 about counting the cost and so forth. So in verse 33, he says, So likewise, whosoever he be of you that forsaketh not all that he hath cannot be my disciple. Three times. You, you have to come because of pure, simple faith in Jesus Christ, asking for forgiveness of your sins. You don't come for the entertainment. You don't come for the friends. You don't come because you'll be more important if you come. You come because you need to be saved. And if you don't, <laughs> you don't have the ability to be my disciple because any other motivation is not going to get it. Is there a price to be paid for coming to the Lord? Sure there is. He talks about that in these verses in between. But you know, if you come to the Lord just to be saved, if you come because you know you're a sinner and at the resurrection, you won't be the resurrection of the just, you'll be the resurrection of the unjust, I just need to be saved from my sins, then you will ask him to save you regardless of what that brings into your life from now on. I've seen places in the world, communist Russia to China to, to places like that, where for someone to get saved, and our missionaries now in the Middle East, Tim Smith, I've been in Turkey with him. If you, if you profess the Lord there, you will be persecuted, and they know it. It may cost you your life, but people came to be saved because eternal life is more important. That's what the Lord is saying. Do you have that? Is, is, did you come to him to be a savior or some kind of enabler for you to be in a more important place? Well, this is a long passage, and in looking at it all, by the way, verse 34, uh, do you want to be salt or do you want to be sand? <laughs> you know, uh, if salt loses its savor, you throw it out into the driveway, and it's sand is all salt is if it doesn't have savor in it. And he's saying that to the Jewish people and to the people whose light is set on a hill, whose candlestick you don't put under a bushel. Don't let your salt be just sand. So what's the takeaway to this? I think it is this, let me say as, as, we, as we close. Christianity, folks, is a stewardship. You and I have a stewardship with the gospel. Christianity is an ambassadorship. We represent heaven. We don't represent earth. It's a missionary endeavor to the uttermost parts of the world. We're pilgrims and strangers. We're Sadducees, uh, soldiers, I mean, with, with armor to put on. We're sowers that have seed that have to be spread on the ground. We're citizens of heaven and of the kingdom of God, not of this earth. Our reward is there. Our reward is in the next life, in the kingdom supper. 
So as Paul ended the great resurrection chapter, wherefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast and unmovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. It'll be rewarded in due season. So let's serve the Lord that way. Let's serve him for what uh, uh, he says we will get in the kingdom of God and let him be the steward of that and we'll be the steward of ministry while we live on this earth. Stand now with me, if you will. As we stand and think about these things, we'll sing a song of invitation. Let's bow our heads and let's go to him in prayer first. Father in heaven, now, as we've read this passage, it's interesting long passage with striking words in it. I pray, Father, that you would help us by your spirit to understand this word and to see its importance in our lives. There are very pointed things said here, and we've taken them to heart, and we see ourselves in many of these statements and many of these verses. Forgive us of that, Father. Help us to have a proper view of ministry and of life of Christianity in this world. And we've seen others, Father, that encourage us that you sent preachers to the highways and hedges and compelled us to come in and we came and we thank you for it. We thank you, Father, because though we may not have much in this world, uh, we're, we're rich in the kingdom of God. And so, Father, we rejoice in those things too. So however you've spoken to our heart and whatever we've needed to hear, I pray that you would burden us that way, that you would encourage us also in your word, that you would draw us to yourself. Help us, Father, to have this perspective that we should have and bless you for it. We'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing a song,